OSL is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We are currently running winter lunchtime on-site sessions discussing the superficial and ortho-voltage treatment portfolio that we distribute for WOMED, owned by Baybig. This comprehensive KV unit portfolio ranges from energies of 50 to 300 KV with excellent patient and staff safety features and we offer an incredible service and support package for your engineering team to ensure a smooth and efficient service for your patients. Please do get in touch if you require further information. And finally, as always, do not hesitate to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name is Laura and I work at Convensys as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We will open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So welcome to podcast number 73. My name's Joe McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Nomanjelka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest Holly Roberts who talked about Larson and her charity Larson's Pride um, and working with children with brain tumours and their families. If you haven't had a chance yet please do go and take a listen and please also have a tissue at the ready. So we are pleased to introduce our guest and friend for this evening Danny Hutton who's discussing his career and working as the ODN. Thank you, Danny, so much for joining us. Finally got you on. Can't believe it's taken us quite so long. And I'm sure you're pretty bored of talking to me in various guises. Um, but Danny, for anyone who doesn't know you, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, lovely to be on. Uh, yeah, my name's Danny Hutton. I'm a therapeutic radiographer and the programme manager for the Northwest Radiotherapy Operational Delivery Network. So Danny, how did you become a therapeutic radiographer? Uh, it's probably a, a similar path to a lot of people. I was finished my A levels. I was looking at looking at careers. I was quite keen to do something working with people. You know, I was keen to work in a caring profession. Uh, I first went to physio. Uh, didn't quite get the grades, so went into to clearing, and uh, I had a visit to Cottage Cancer Centre, or Cottage Centre for Oncology, as it was in sort of two thousand and two, and sort just there. Uh, fell in love with with it, you know, thinking it's quite a privileged position to work with people during that, that stage, you know, a cancer diagnosis and treatment. I thought, yeah, this is for me. So I went in and studied at the University of Liverpool. Yeah, and had a, had a, a brilliant time. Loved every minute of it since. And how long did you work clinically as a therapeutic radiographer? Uh, I first qualified and went to Lancashire Teaching Hospital. And worked there for a couple of years and then returned to Clatterbridge for a senior radiographer position. Then done various roles. So uh, 
clinical researcher and then more recently a team leader. So I worked clinically for 15 years in all and then in 2015 Joe, I had an opportunity to work on, uh, take a bit of a, a different step and I worked as a, a change manager on the construction of Clasbridge Cancer Centre Liverpool which was a specialist cancer centre in the uh, the heart of Liverpool so that was an, an opportunity I felt I couldn't turn down so I stepped away from clinical. I did try and keep both up for a while so I did on call but uh, you know radiotherapies advances quickly it's specialist and actually doing that with bits and pieces was really challenging and my other job was fully consuming so it was with a heavy heart I decided to to step away but I'll always be a therapeutic radiographer and my, my heart will always be sort of uh, you know clinically focused. And you got quite a lot of media publicity didn't you for the role you were doing because that was quite novel I always thought seeing images of you in a hard hat thinking of you as a therapeutic radiographer going what on earth is he doing in the middle of a building site just talk us through that whole kind of process and is that something that you think happens regularly um when radiotherapy departments are being developed implemented designed yeah i think i think it was really important actually sort of we had our construction par- partners who were Willango Rock and they were excellent and then we worked with with the architects so we had the uh, bdp so we had that expertise and knowledge I think the other part of that puzzle was was clinical. So I was I saw myself as a, a the clinical voice, making sure the design and build sort of allowed professionals the space and uh, resources and requirements to do their job fully and well. I give a great patient experience. When I look back, it wasn't something conscious I did to sort of go into sort of change management and project management. But it's interesting when you do look back, I've always been interested in, in projects. I've done quality improvement things with with Aqua. Uh, and I was always interested in doing doing other things and sort of, you know, how we can make things better for, for colleagues and also so patients. Uh, yeah, so it was really interesting. I think anything like that, there needs to be a clinical voice, sort of patient representative, but also professionals representing what, what good looks like. What do you miss the most about not being clinical? Uh, I think, obviously, the patient contact, but I don't miss that quite as much as I thought I would. That was something I was really concerned about. I think that's why I carried on doing my own call and, and staying clinical for a bit. I think what I really miss is that uh, that team. Sort of, You work very close with your colleagues on a, on a LINAC. You make very close bonds and friendships uh, I think the other thing I miss is you achieve something every day, clinical. You know, you treat and look after and meet 35 to 40 patients and you get a real sense of satisfaction because you always finish your list. Uh, in my role, it's always the same. I can go sort of days or weeks and I feel like I've not really <laughs> achieved much. It's probably not true, but uh, you get that real sense of satisfaction, sort of think working with uh, directly with, with patients but what I do feel in my role is that I do still make a contribution and rather than treating one patient in front of me at a time, you know, I am looking at patients sort of not only in, in one one trust but across the Northwest and I'm really pleased with some of the uh, the changes and improvements we've made as a Northwest Radiotherapy ODM. So you talk about the ODN, so the, I always get this wrong, Operational Delivery Network. 
Um, can you tell us a bit more, bit more about that, and what's the purpose? Yeah, so uh, NHS England set up the the radiotherapy ODNs in in twenty nineteen. Uh, I, th- I guess the main, in a nutshell, now I mean, the main focus is to deliver the radiotherapy service spec. So that's how providers uh, get commissioned and get reimbursed for the services that they provide. So I guess my job in a nutshell is to support my colleagues at the, the three providers in the northwest, so the Christie, the Clatterbridge Can Centre and Langs Teaching Hospital to be compliant with that service spec. Now if you, if you go down below that, sort of the main aims around increasing access to radiotherapy because we know that about 40% of patients have radiotherapy who are having cancer have radiotherapy but that could be be higher and we know there's a, uh, there's inequalities in access across across the country so it's about improving access it's about improving patient experience that's a big part of of my role and we've done some work on that we're looking at reducing variation and increasing quality so we talk about reducing variation because so we like we look at standardizing protocols uh, we do a lot of shared learning so look at if someone's doing stuff well we ask how are you doing that we'd like to do it as well if someone's struggling we look at that uh, also equipment utilization so this is a bit controversial or well, not controversial but we have targets on, on how many radiotherapy fractions we should put through linux now that's quite a challenging target and some might say unachievable but I'm doing some work in the northwest at the moment, and I've almost put the target out of my head because I think that's almost largely irrelevant. I think it's more important that we make things easier for professionals, and that make things better for patients. And then, as a consequence, utilization will go up. But that's not our focus. And then, probably the final aim of the sort of the broad, high-level aims in uh, the ODN is about trials and research. So we're looking to increase access to clinical trials. So what we've done in the Northwest is we've done some work looking at what are the barriers and facilitators. We've done some shared learning between the three, between the three providers. But then I'm hoping the next couple of weeks to get out a, a clinical trials database. So this collates all the trials available in the Northwest. And then the final part of that will be uh, putting a process in place so we can uh, refer patients across providers. Because I think that's something that doesn't happen as fully and well as it could do at the moment. But yeah, that sort of in a nutshell, what we're, we're doing in the ODN and what we're trying to achieve. Only a few things then, not much. <laughs> not very busy at all, are you, Danny? <laughs> not really, no. <laughs> so, Danny, I'm thinking of a therapeutic radiographer or someone involved in radiotherapy working down south thinking, this sounds amazing. I don't know who my ODN is. I don't know what they're doing. How can people within a specific region find out who the ODN is and get involved if they if they want to? Yeah, I think there's 11 radiotherapy ODNs across the country. Uh, there's been really good engagement. I think in terms of, of getting involved, it's something I've got on my, my list for, for next year. I think in the Northwest, we're doing some really good work. Arguably... And this is a daft thing to say, but you only know about the radiotherapy ODN if you know about it. So the people that come and attend my meetings and engage in me is great. But then when I walk around the trusts more recently, I'm not convinced that everyone knows what we're doing fully and well. And if you ask people what are the ODN's objective, that everyone would, would say similar things. So that's something we're trying to do more of. So we've got a newsletter that will be launched in the new year for the ODN to celebrate some of the good work we're doing. Uh, I would encourage people to get involved. I think... 
we have a network outside group that's made up of tends to be the heads of service, so clinical director from clinical oncology, uh, heads of physics, heads of radiotherapy, but we're always looking for other members. I think something we've done well in the Northwest is we've got uh, colleagues involved in projects, so we're always looking for people to get involved in projects. So an example of that would be what we worked on. Joe did prehab rehab. So we got Charlotte working on that, who at the time was uh, a radiographer grade or a senior radiographer. She's been promoted since. Uh, we've got loads of examples where we're looking for people with a bit of energy, a bit of enthusiasm. It'll be a real development role. And it's probably a mantra of my career, really, sort of, you know, look for opportunities and if an opportunity comes up, say yes. But uh, I'm going to take the opportunity to do a shameless plug because we've got an, uh, I've just secured some funding for a quality improvement role. So that'll be, uh, we're targeting therapeutic grade doctors for that. It'll be uh, a band seven. It'll be 0.6, so three days a week. Sort of flexible at home working with the opportunity to still keep up some clinical. Because I was, I was keen for that, because that's something I would have liked when I was dipping my toe in some quality improvement or project management. Kind of keep up the clinical work. And that should hopefully go out for advert next week. But yeah, I'd encourage anyone to get involved and speak to the ODNs because we've, we've got lots of exciting work. That's true of all the 11 ODNs. And I know the ODN managers always welcome people with an interest, a bit of passion, a bit of energy. Danny, I've got a controversial question for you. So you're obviously part of the ODN, so helping radiotherapy progress, standardise things. I suppose just thinking if any patients are listening, why are there only 70 centres in the country? If there are these development networks for each region, why aren't we having more centres crop up? Obviously, I know the answer, but some people might not understand it. Yeah, so we've got... It's, a, it's an interesting one and sort of... I think when I was on the Transformer Cancer Care Project that was building a class which can centre Liverpool, one of the, the real things we were trying to do was, was take treatment close to home for patients. So, you know, there was local... Uh, Sorry, it was, it, was, uh, yeah. it was local where possible, but centralised where required. So we are looking to, to give care close to home, but something we've done in the ODN is looked at what services we probably do need to provide regionally, because we can't deliver everything fully and well, so some of the more complex stuff. So part of my role in the last two years has been about looking at fragile services or services where the numbers aren't complying with the radiotherapy service spec. So you might treat you know a handful of patients in a year, and that becomes really difficult to deliver a service and really difficult to maintain competencies, develop the service. Uh, one of the big things we've done is we've moved children's radiotherapy out of Liverpool and we're moving that to Manchester. Now, we were a bit ahead. This is a national drive because the complexity and the specialised care required for children. But that sort of goes a bit against my values because I like to deliver care close to home. But that pragmatic view that we can't always do that. Uh, but on the other hand, I think Sabre has been a really, really good story. So I think in June 2020, NHS England put a call out. So Sabre stereotactive ablative body radiotherapy. Uh, at the time, there's three levels to Sabre. So level one is lung and lung oligomets. Level two gets a bit more complex, which is sort of uh, lymph and bone oligomets. And then your level three is, is your most complex. So at the time, Langston Teaching Hospitals were doing some level one but as part of that national program we paired them up with a mentor which was the Christie. so now Sabre is delivered so Lang's delivered Sabre uh, all level one 
all level two and part level three. So that was a real good story about actually taking advanced intensive radiotherapy and bringing it close to patients' home. And that was the right thing to do, but for some things we can't do that. So I'm waffling on now, but I, I think uh, we always try and put radiotherapy close to home. But there's some things that we can't. I think Sabre's a good example. When it first started, that was done in specialised centres through uh, commission through evaluation. But more and more now, we're seeing that delivered close to home. So more and more patients have access to the best treatments. So it's always a journey. Yeah, exactly. And I think in you know 2020, with COVID hitting uh, Radiotherapy UK, so you're also a champion for them. Yeah. And they pushed the agenda around Sabre quite a lot, especially with the government and... I remember hearing wonderful Matt Hancock stand up and call it a CT scanner or something in Parliament. Like it, that doesn't help us. But obviously, the Saber, like some departments, have been doing it for a while, but it wasn't commissioned by NHS England, so there was that loop around to get through. But the infrastructure's there. All the machines are, you know, they're amazing. Although I think there was a stat from Radiotherapy UK that I think by 2020, about 60 Linux across the country needed replacement at the very least. So I know that there's still a lot of work to be done, isn't there? Yeah, I think that's something we, we look at as part of uh, the radiotherapy ODN. So we've got a equipment replacing programme. And that's probably worth saying the ODN is sort of uh, a helping function. I think when it first started, there was perhaps a bit of suspicion from our colleagues that would be sort of looking over, checking them, saying, oh, you're not compliant with the service spec, you should be doing this. I see myself and the ODN sitting much more the same, same side of the table helping and supporting. I guess one of the ways we're doing that is we're looking at uh, capital replacement programs and equipment. So as you said, there's a, a sort of an, uh, a rule, if you like, that Linux should be placed after 10 years. So we work to that. On that equipment replacement program, we're also adding on some of the diagnostic kicks. That's always been important, become increasingly important. Have we got the right uh, pre-treatment scanners? So, you know, conventionally it was CT, but increasingly we have more access to PET, MRI, so that's going to be important. And then also software, you know, treatment planning software, uh, auto-contouring, software is going to become much more important. So as an ODM, we're looking ahead and saying, what do we need to be replacing in in the next, you know, the next three, five years? Uh, and that landscape's changing a little bit because we're not going to have the Linac fairy again, it doesn't sound like. So when this money come in, which was, was very welcome, I think the other part that was missing about the workforce, but we don't go into that now, uh, but what we're trying to do is work with the ICBs because the way we're going to fund Linux is changing and the ODN are hopefully helping with that conversation and we're also helping with conversations around commissioning and tariff. Because we're on a block contract now. Uh, but I'm not convinced the current ta tariff incentivised advanced and innovative radiotherapy. So it doesn't in incentivise doing, doing saber or more complex stuff. Now, people do things for the right reasons and that's brilliant. But as services, we can't always do the right things for the right reasons. If we're not getting properly remunerated for it, we can't fund those services. So I think the ODN is an important voice in that, sort of working with the providers, working with the National Programme of Care team, NHS England, and a regional speccom to inform those conversations so we can do what we want to do, which is deliver you know, world-class radiotherapy, and continue to deliver world-class radiotherapy for the people we serve. How did you find COVID, um, like the challenges? Obviously the ODN started in 2019. Uh, and then you were hit with one of the biggest challenges we've ever faced. Yeah, so I, I moved in September 20 to the ODN. So my 
sort of first experience of COVID was was working on the uh, just finishing off the building. So we we changed our plan a little bit. We gave up some of the wards to COVID patients to uh, a neighbouring acute hospital. So it was really bizarre because I was working sort of six days a week, but everything was really quiet. So I was going to the hospital, and then but I was still seeing a lot of people, and then that changed. So I started a new role. I was working from my office at home. Uh, I think we didn't really get into the strategic stuff as an ODN because we were, we were so busy supporting the providers with, with COVID. But I think that really allowed us to to uh, come together and establish our relationships. And what one of the things we did is, which is related to Sabre in a way, but also things we, we looked at hyperfractionation. So almost overnight, we adopted hyperfractionation. Now, a lot of that was already supported by the evidence base, but I'm not convinced it would have been implemented as quickly in a non-COVID world. So we had COVID response meetings. Uh, there was lots of shared learning. You know, work with this challenge. Uh, you know, how are you adapting with it? One of the one of the things was as patients were getting, uh, sorry, not patients, as colleagues were getting their COVID jabs, one of the hospitals jabbed the whole department at once and then realised that probably wasn't great because a lot of them were off ill the next couple of days with, with the uh, with the side effects. So that was a bit of learning. So it was good. There was, there was really good communication. Uh, I think it really allowed us to get some momentum in terms of looking at our protocols, uh, how we could work together. We looked at service resilience. Is that something the ODM brings? You know, if one service is, is struggling for, for something to support there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm very pleased we're sort of getting back to normality now and I'm increasingly seeing people face to face. I think there's definitely a place for, for remote working. But uh, I am a people person, so it's nice to get back and see people. Absolutely. I think you can definitely uh, feel the energy at conferences and things when people finally get to see each other after they've been working with each other remotely for years and years. And then actually you're like, I can see your face and I can touch you. <laughs> Danny, you are privy and in such a position that you get to see and hear things and, you know, integrate within lots of different fields that maybe people working within radiotherapy just don't have access to. What are the main priorities at the minute that you think the workforce or radiotherapy generally has? I think it's it's a uh, it's workforce. We've got a lot, we have got a lot of challenges. And sort of, I've got got uh, priorities as a radiotherapy I want to deliver, but they always come back to, you know, our workforce. I think we need to, you know, we talk a lot about recruitment. And we see that in the press, sort of, and tends to be nurses. Unfortunately, you know, we sometimes don't get mentioned, but we need this many more nurses. I think the other thing we need to do is look at retain. You know, how we how do we retain colleagues? How do we develop colleagues? Because otherwise, it's like filling. A leaking bucket you know we can get the HEIs and and uh, HEA to work hard and say we need more therapeutic radiographers we need more engineers we need more clinical scientists we need more doctors but if, if we're not looking after them if we're not supporting them if we're not developing them that effort and energy is wasted so perhaps a bit of a cop-out Joe but all my priorities come down to to sort of uh, the workforce that's how we, we achieve things we talk about being patient-centered and that's really important but almost as sort of managers as leaders, you can to an extent almost forget the patients. If you look after your colleagues, if you look after professionals delivering service, they'll do that. That's what they want to do. 
you just need to give them the, the time, the resource and the opportunity to do that. I think it's a really good point. I mean, constantly seeing, so what, there's going to be clinical nurse specialist sorters of 3,300 or something soon, but you're not going to get 3,300 specialist nurses in a year. That would be six, seven years because obviously they have their shortfalls for recruitment. But, mm. you know, that's where AHPs come in. So therapeutic radiographer like me, part of my role is being a clinical nurse specialist for people going through radiotherapy. I'm not a nurse, but I can do the exact same things, if not, you know, more than them. So I don't see why, exactly as you said, yeah. the current staff that we have, that's who should be plugging the holes. And actually, if people have an interest in a certain area, which traditionally might have been a nursing role or a junior doctor role, why not train them up? Because that's going to keep them happy, hopefully keep them in the job. There's so many of my friends have left radiotherapy at the moment just to go and, I don't know, work as a car salesman because they're going to earn £60,000 a year with commission just because they need their family to survive. I mean, obviously, we're not going to get paid £60,000 overnight either. But having that investment in people, exactly as you said, that's what we need. I think people aren't quite seeing it because what the media portrays all the time. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I mean, I think... Uh... And pay is, pay is important. That goes out out of doubt. But I think some, some things we can do now is uh, we need to carry on fighting that. I think the Society and College Radiographers and other professional bodies are doing a good job with that. We need to promote that we should be getting a fair wage. You know, there's been uh, the way the uh, the the freeze on inflation, inflation to our wage haven't kept up with pace. But I think that there's some things we can do day to day, sort of, you know, looking after each other, uh, you know, flexible working where possible. Just supporting people in work, you know, th there's so much more we can do. And I think there's lots of good work looking at recruitment and retention. And I think retention is where we can really focus. And, and obviously salary is a big part, that was the only part of it. Some of the work we've done in job satisfaction, you know, people get a lot of value from doing their role fully and well. I know the times when I haven't been as happy in work is when I feel like I haven't been able to do my job fully and well. For various reasons, whether that being because we're short-staffed or, you know, we haven't got the support around us. So like the the on-treatment review radiographers, clinical nurse specialists, and you feel like you're not giving a good service to the patient and that makes you feel a bit empty. Yeah, it's really challenging, isn't it? And I know I've looked a lot at workforce from student, student perspectives, recruitment and retention has always been a huge interest of mine, but it is really difficult because I can imagine that people who have an invested interest in patient care and thrive to do roles like radiographer review and advanced practice consultancy practice is amazing but ultimately our specialist role and skills is to treat patients with radiotherapy radiation treatments and no one else can do that which is different I suppose for um, maybe a clinical nurse specialist where other AHPs or you know I've, I've discussed this previously but how about using the support worker workforce to support patients with personalized care the issue I would imagine that will happen is people will then not feel satisfied because they love that aspect of the role. And, you know, the, techni the technical delivery of the radiotherapy um, is only part of our role as a therapeutic radiographer. And I know just through recruitment in terms of the apprenticeships and BSc pre-registration routes, you often find people coming into the profession because they want to work with patients and and be able to provide that patient care as well as obviously delivering delivering amazing radiotherapy services so it's so complex and it's probably more complex than other 
healthcare professions, which is why sometimes we struggle. Um, Portfolio careers seem to be something that is very niche at the moment. Um, When we've looked at some of the generational data, it said that people will have between three and four different careers along their career pathway. And that's something that we've never necessarily supported within radiotherapy. Can you see that yourself, Danny, in terms of obviously yourself, but also within the workforce that you're working with? Yeah, I think it brings it brings real value as well. I think uh, when I think about the different roles I've done, I remember one of my section managers saying to me, "You need you you know you need to learn to say no." And that's probably true now, but I didn't think it was true early in my career, and I'm getting better at that. But uh, I don't ever want to get too good. I quite enjoy doing things. I think I had exactly the same feedback, Danny. They're like, you just need to say no. And I'm like, why? I love all the opportunities I get to say yes to. And the one time you say no, then you'd never be approached again, I'm sure. (laughs) I like to hear, but I think some of the things I've said yes to, that being really beneficial for me is I got involved as a a trade union, rep for the Siding College Radiographers quite early. So I I worked uh, as a health and safety officer at Langs Teaching Hospital and then an IR rep at Clatterbridge. I sat on the Northwest Regional Committee and actually you learn a lot from that and you learn a lot of good skills and I think that's what gave, my, gave me my uh, my grounding in sort of some of the management stuff I've done leadership would actually come from my days as a rep so it's important to say yeah to things like that. I think any opportunity you can get so doing this comment as a clinical researcher was really important to me then obviously being a change manager on construction, give me different experience, knowledge and skills. Uh, but I think it's doing things as well, sort of, so when opportunities come up, you have got an opportunity to say, I haven't done that job per se, but I've got experience of quality improvement or I've got experience of project management. I've done this short course, or I've done this, or I've had experience, I've worked with this person. But you never know what opportunities become available. And actually, I think I've become increasingly what I call a generalist. So... At one time, I was an advanced practitioner. I had a real good technical knowledge of radiotherapy. I think I've probably got a more superficial knowledge of a lot of things now. But I know the right people to go and ask to. I know the right people to get around the table to have discussions and inform our decisions. And that's something I love. I like having that sort of more uh, overview. I think I'd only get that from the different roles I've done in my career. And external opportunities, like a school governor, you learn lots from that. You apply stuff from education to health. There's a lot of similarities. You meet different people. Uh, when I've gone on courses, I always try and do it with uh, other health professionals or even I'm doing a course at the moment and I got offered the option of an NHS cohort and I decided to go on the open cohort. So I'm working with people from MOD, uh, insurance, uh, a lady from South Africa who runs a coal mine. So you get lots of different experiences and, that, and that's you know, really valuable. That's definitely developing your network, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Danny, I'm going to ask you a question that I'm quite passionate about. So um, I've just been part of a HEE um, design project to develop an animation around environmental sustainability. And it's something that I know we're not very good at in radiotherapy, um, as well as the entire NHS, um, but radiotherapy and the NHS is that part of the ODN's agenda? Is that something they've even thought about? I must admit, Joe, it is sort of low down 
the pecking order, but it's something we've, we've thought about. I think part of that is how we can reduce the carbon footprint of radiotherapy. I think part of that goes back to what I was saying, delivering treatment and care close to people's homes, you know, putting centres that have got good transport links. So there is the option to use uh, trains or buses to get there, and that's what we've done in Clasbridge Liverpool. We made sure there's a good transport network. So part of my role was working with the local child providers. Now, we didn't have a big, -ish, uh, a big, big voice in that, but we said, you know, we're going to be having patients, visitors, staff coming here. Can we look at, at bus routes and how they get there? Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, I think we've all got a responsibility, regardless of what industry, sort of, so personally, but also professionally, to sort of address that. Uh, there's some work that's going on with College of the Christie that I'm sort of not involved in, but I'm aware of, where they are looking at that to sort of uh, establish what the carbon footprint of radiotherapy is, because then once we know it, and we measure it, we can look to, to reduce it. It's interesting. Um, I think the NHS wants to have a net zero by 2045. But I read this stat the other... I think I, just because Joe and I were messaging yesterday and I was just Googling what the NHS does, but I think the supply chain for the NHS is over 60%. Um, gives out like carb, like is carbon emissions, basically, obviously, with the logistics side of things. But then I think as a, the NHS healthcare provider compared to others in the world, I think we account for 5% of the carbon footprint or something, which is quite a lot if you think about it for one organisation. Obviously, the NHS has a huge workforce. Um, and like you always see that top five where it's like next to McDonald's or Walmart or whatever. There's a lot of us, but it's quite interesting to look at it that way that, I mean, for example, I do bloods in, in our blood tray. Um, you know, the needle comes with a plastic sheath comes in a plastic case which is wrapped around a plastic thing as well but most people just throw that into the yellow bin to, but it's not actually touch the patient um so i did have a chat with some of our waste kind of experts management people and they said yeah you can recycle those things but it's like you know the rubber tourniquet because it's touched the patient you would throw it away but technically they are washable it's just i think trying to get people on board with that sort of thing to be able to reuse them because it shouldn't just be one tourniquet per patient you can reuse them sometimes or if the patient's going to have you know like for head and neck we reuse the thermoplastic masks and put them in a bag you know things can be reused properly it's just interesting yeah we've got an, uh, there's a colleague at a uh, classbridge can center who i think was in a a he fellowship but she's looking at uh, therapy radiography but she's looking at plastic waste in aseptic pharmacies now there's going to be lots of i think aseptic pharmacies are probably used a lot but radiotherapy probably don't do too good either so i'll be really interested to see what what her learning is and what her suggestions are but it's that sort of thing you do for aseptic pharmacy but then what can we learn and adapt for for our work it's of those small wins that will will add up to be a, a meaningful difference yeah, absolutely. And something to hopefully save the planet and uh, support the future, the future of all of healthcare. Um, and also, I also think when we talk about environmental issues, it's linking back to public health. You know, if you can create a better environment, are you going to reduce the number of carcinogens in the in the environment that then obviously reduce the number of people that go on to develop cancer as well as obviously our passion Danny prehabilitation and rehabilitation do you want to talk to us about some of the projects that the ODN are involved in in that area yeah I think sort of obviously I'm, I'm the radiotherapy ODN but I've always had an interest in uh, 
public health, done some work with, with Laura Charlesworth around smoking cessation and other things, because I think that's something we could be doing more of. I guess a bit more recently, we got together, Joe, and started looking at prehab and rehab. Uh, and really, I guess what, what, I'm, what we're trying to do in, in the North West is get a sort of foundation of people with that knowledge through the e-learning for health, the Prosper modules, who are, are one, aware of prehab and rehab, and two, feel comfortable and confident having those conversations. Uh, we're also then looking to establish what services are available across the three regions in the Northwest, so Lancaster, South Cumbria, Greater Manchester, Cheshire and Mearside, because that'll allow those practitioners to then, one, have the conversation, and then two, make an onward referral. And then probably the second part of that prehab rehab plan is doesn't it? I don't know whether you know this, Joe. There's a wonderful module at Sheffield Hallam University on prehab rehab. I think they've got a really good course leader as well. Is there? Oh, I've not <laughs> heard about that one. I'll have to check it out. So we got some of our uh, our colleagues on that, and uh, I was lucky in, in the summer. I listened to what their projects were, and they were brilliant. And I think we need to support more of that. So it's having that sort of two step approach in the northwest. We've got significant amount of colleagues who have got a enough knowledge to have the conversations and refer on and then we've got a second layer of people who've done the level seven msc module who are sort of champions and sort of actually starting to implement some of those changes that'll make a big difference for patients we've done really well radio therapy survival's gone up uh, but now we need to make sure that that survival is really meaningful for patients and not it's not just great we've done our job as radiotherapy it's actually how do we support them to live full and good lives sort of uh, acknowledging that we are going to cause some acute and late effects uh, but make them the best they can be fit enough for treatment but then also get them back to what they were or even better with i suppose a question to both of you really around prehab and rehab some of the challenges obviously clinically you're always going to have issues but do you find that therapeutic radiographers might not see rehabilitation as part of their role or their remit i know we've talked about late effects but joe breathe i'm not having a go <laughs> um but yeah I, d- I just wonder if if that's something that you've come across so far both of you it's a good question Naman. i think what we did was we we asked so we don't we used the e-length health prosper modules and we asked the question and we asked that question do you see this as part of your role and uh, i can't remember the stats off the top of my head so joe might be able to save me but obviously the intervention helped so a lot of people saying no it's not part of our role and there's good reasons that, you know, we're too busy, it's not caught what we do. But then actually after doing two short e-length health modules, it was much more positive. And people said, yeah, this is part of our role and we could do this. So it's, it's bringing people up to speed, educating them, but then also showing them how they can do it uh, quickly. And that their responsibility is to make people, uh, patients aware of it and then refer on. Do you want to add anything to that, John? I think the challenge... Yeah, I th- I would say I can't remember the stat exactly, but I d- I do know that it was significantly different, um, and that opinions changed as a consequence of education. The one thing I would definitely say is that it's very easy for therapeutic radiographers to be within their radiotherapy bubble, and we because we don't see patients after treatment. You know, it's very rare unless they come back for more treatment that we have that continued relationship or you have someone in an advanced practice role who's maybe doing clinics later on down the pathway. But because therapeutic radiographers aren't privy to seeing patients afterwards, it's purely as a consequence of, of working for Macmillan and doing rad chat 
that I see the consequences of treatment very visibly in front of me now and hearing from patients. And that patient voice is very compelling when you have patients saying, I had treatment five years ago and it's horrific living with the consequences of treatment and I'm really struggling what can I do and when you're hearing that day in day out which some of the clinical nurse specialists will be doing but won't always attribute it to radiotherapy it's it's really easy for me to go oh my gosh we've got an amazing workforce they have the ability to make this a difference for so many patients and that's why I'm so passionate about education because I wish that we had enough money and time to be able to do some postgraduate training for everyone so that they realise this and using the patient voice is really important because if I go into radiotherapy departments and Danny, this might be something you see and you go, right, this is a problem, we need to make this change. Everyone goes, oh no, it's Jo Mac, she, she's on one, they'll do an eye roll, she's got this beer nub on it. Um, and it is really difficult, isn't it, to make that change? How do you do it, Danny, as a leader who is trying to influence change within radiotherapy departments and across the oncology pathway? Uh, I get I get informed by sort of chance. People think that patient voices are really power, powerful too. I think data is useful, uh, but I think the quantitative data is useful, and that sort of might be what you put in a business case. But I think increasingly when I'm sort of speaking to sort of the colleagues, I think a personal story goes a long way. Uh, there's probably a couple of things to talk about that. Sort of, I've recently finished a piece of work with the team at Lancaster University on the Garney Cancer Narratives book. And that was a real eye-opener for me. I thought I knew what late effects was and what life after treatment might be for patients. I was blissfully unaware, really. So if people get the chance to, to, to read that book, I'd suggest... Uh, you know, invest a bit of time because it really opened my eyes to what life after radiotherapy is. And it's quite right that we pat ourselves on the back and say we're improving survival. But there's much more we can do for these patients. So the patient voices is going to be really important. I think another way of getting that is through uh, patient report outcome measures. So EPROMs. So again, survival's going up, brilliant. But what does life after treatment look and feel like for individuals? Uh, but that's the way I sort of try and change things with the ODN I take I take sort of areas I think we could make a difference and improve I chat to people we try and get, come together with a bit of plan uh, get that resource but it's taking people on a bit of a journey and sort of as I said data is really useful We're really data informed in radiotherapy we're seeing more of that with sort of things like Prono the radiotherapy data set but I think that needs to be coupled with uh, patient voices real patient data whether it be problems or narratives uh, and that all, that's all part of the big data jigsaw then that allows us to to make improvements and get people on board because them stories are compelling exactly and i think when you hear patients who are having late effects even if it's a few weeks or months or whatever after treatment so maybe more of an acute late effect if you want and they're in an a and they've waited five hours and got a scan which they didn't need that's another element that i'm personally quite interested in because from an acute oncology perspective um, lots of the acute oncology team on the telephone lines will be mostly nurses but they have a very limited or basic knowledge of radiotherapy and late effects from radiotherapy which results in obviously you can't see the patient through the phone but if a patient is describing you know rectal bleeding for example which we might know as being normal for that kind of treatment they'll send them to A&E 
you know that's another bed lots of you know five hours plus of investigations etc and then when actually if we had late effects clinic for example you know we could and that's that's where as you said you need to gather the data from patients experiences of going into a e or going to their gp almost being fobbed off at times um but that's yeah that's something again i think therapeutic radio offers should be linking in with acute oncology and uh especially a e if you go to a e if someone's coming with a skin reaction some of the things they put on it's not nice and then we're the ones debriding yeah. it and taking off the horrible stuff they've put on but it's as you said it's a quick win it's a really simple educational session um or just having a link to an advanced practitioner who might feel brave enough to go into a e because it is quite scary in there sometimes um but yeah hopefully that's something in the future we can look into and there is the charity it's been approved now the uk acute oncology um charity now exists and that's again hopefully helping to educate um other healthcare professionals that work in acute oncology to educate them about radiotherapy and there's a great team if anyone's interested in joining then absolutely get in touch with me um but that's a great way isn't it to kind of upskill workforces and working with each other is going to share all of that experience and hopefully help um the patient which is what we're ultimately all here for so um danny we've almost come to the end I know that we could talk for hours and hours about everything radiotherapy and we've probably only touched on the surface. And uh, for anyone listening to this, we've already invited Danny and Lisa to come on Instagram Live um, to go through the gynecological cancer narrative. So please keep an eye out for that if you're listening to this podcast episode. Um, so Danny, top tips. Is there anything that you would advise? Um, I'm thinking probably people working in radiotherapy what would you like them to take away from this podcast episode? Uh, I think sometimes in radiotherapy we get very busy delivering what's in front of us and that's totally understandable. I think the radiotherapy audience are that one step removed but close enough. So, you know, come to us with what you think can be done differently. Come work with us, engage. Uh, I'm always looking for people to, to get involved in projects and, and inform our, our thinking and our strategy. So, uh yeah, come come and work with us. Say yes, <laughs> and uh... <laughs> say yes. And I would say as well, you do. There are times you do have to do it in your own time, and that I suppose is the real challenge. And if you are working twelve hours a day in radiotherapy, it's it's really really difficult. I know the yeah. hours that you put in, Danny, outside of your role just to ensure that projects are kept to time that you're kind of having eyes over everything is there anything that you would advise for someone who is doing things in their own time but to make it worthwhile for them yeah it's something uh do as i say not as i do i try and encourage people to work with to sort of try not to do that but the reality is is you know i love what i do and i sort of get quite passionate about it so it's having that balance so i've had a busy couple of weeks now but I'm making a conscious effort not to do some of that next week. So it's it's about sort of recognising when you're busy and sort of uh, measuring your effort, realising it to, to marathon or sprint. But yeah, I've always done things in my own time because uh, it's something I enjoy and passionate about. It's just sort of keeping an eye on, on yourself and your colleagues. I think we've done that. Joe, I think we've done it to each other where we've sort of gone to join a call or a meeting when we're on annual leave and we, we say to the person, that's not a good idea, don't do it. 
So it's about sort of managing yourself, but also managing your mates and your colleagues a bit and sort of keeping an eye on each other. But we get a lot of passion, a lot of joy from what I do. So actually, I do enjoy it by and large, sort of when I, I do things in my own time. And you see the benefits of it, and that's a, a massive reward. And I always laugh because uh, I think my household is all consumed with me talking about cancer and radiotherapy and radiation treatments. And Danny, you are married to a therapeutic radiographer who also does lots in her own time and lots of project work. So um, I can only imagine the conversations. <laughs> Do you have to put a limit on like, right, we're not talking about work anymore? Uh, we don't really sort of, we, we don't talk about work that much. <laughs> Bizarrely. Right, okay. We are working on a paper <laughs> together, Nick and I, at the moment. That's nearly finished. Yeah. yeah, I think it's just part of of who we are. We're both very passionate therapeutic radiographers. We're really passionate about what we do. We want to make a difference. Yeah, yeah we don't have a, a strict strict cut-off, but we, do, we work quite separately as well. So it's normally just about sort of how your day's gone and sort of that sort of husband-wife chat rather than anything specific. Uh, well, thank you so much, Danny. It's been a pleasure and um, I look forward to working with you for many, many years. Um, so thank you for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Joe McNamara and Norman Jogger Anderson. If you're utilising the podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. And to receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast episode. Our next guest to feature will be JJ, who will be discussing his experience of head and neck cancer. So thank you all for listening and take care.